Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Nexo.io and Casper and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is some day in March. Again, I'm on a brief baby leave. I'll be back with you soon. But in the meantime, I'm so excited to bring you a show today with Tracy Shuchart. Tracy is a returning guest to the show. She is an investor and FinTwit superstar specializing in energy and geopolitics. Now, you guys know, for me, the geopolitical context is so incredibly important for understanding Bitcoin and any other asset. But this year, there has been such a mad rush of Bitcoin news that I frankly just haven't had as much space on shows to go deep into how things are evolving from a geopolitical standpoint. That's exactly what Tracy and I do here, talking about fault lines in the Middle East, Iran, China, and more. We also get into a discussion around energy, natural gas in Africa, nuclear in Asia, and more. I know you're going to enjoy this show, so without any further ado, let's dive in. Quick note, I'm Rob. I'm NLW's audio editor and just wanted to let you know in advance that the audio quality of this interview is not quite up to snuff. Know that we're aware of it and hopefully you'll still enjoy it. All right, Tracy, welcome back to The Breakdown. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me again. So uh, we were just talking about this, and basically I feel like I, you know, the, the markets in Bitcoin have been so nuts for the past couple months that I have not had nearly enough time to, uh, to talk about you know, uh, kind of larger macro topics, larger geopolitical topics. And I thought it'd be super fun to just do a bunch of that uh, with you today to talk about some of the geopolitical fault lines, uh, to talk about some of the, you know, you and I were riffing on some of these other energy topics that seem really important important. Uh, but that's kind of what I'm thinking. And so if, uh, if you'll indulge, maybe we can just kind of dive in. Sounds great. Reintroduce yourself for people who may not be familiar. Um, I'm Shy Girl on Twitter. <laughs> and um, I uh, work for a family office. I run an energy and materials portfolio. And I also am the energy and materials analyst at Hedge Fund Telemetry, which we do retail and uh, institutional research. Yeah, I think I feel like people mostly know you from Twitter, because that's the way that the world works now. Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah, as soon as you start, as you sort of start having to sign your like, Federal Reserve CBDC digital dollar as Chai Girl, then you'll know we're in a truly different era, I suppose. I use that for everything now anyway. Me too. I mean, I like... I am definitely an LW. Like, and luckily, for some reason, people don't have that set of initials on like any platform. So I always get it, which is amazing. Um, anyways, so uh, where where should we start? I mean, what are you? I guess let's talk about what you've been thinking about lately. Do we want to go on kind of like the energy side? Do we want to talk about some of the geopolitics stuff? We're recording this obviously right after the Biden administration has had their first foray into bombing, so it's good to see that we're we're back to back to that. Um, but I don't know where. What's the right place to dive in? Uh, I guess I mean right there. I mean, generally, you know, what happens when we see a new administration come into office? We kind of see a pet foreign policy test, if you will, um, where different countries sort of um, kind of push the limits, right? And we started seeing this um, end of December, early January, we see it with Iran, Um, we saw the bombing attacks in Erbil, we had uh, problems in Syria, obviously, Um, there's uh, things going on in the South China Sea, 
So you kind of get this initially anyway at any time you, you change administrations, but now bombs are flying. So that's kind of where we're at in the Middle East right now. It was re- retaliation for what happened in Erbo, um, for American side in the blast there, which, you know, I think that it, you know, it was a, a, an appropriate response for the government. Not, I'm not trying to defend it to go in and bomb a country, obviously, but uh, that would be expected as a foreign policy response. Just saying that that would be expected. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. What I'm kind of looking at also, which, you know, kind of entails all energy as well. I mean, Syria pretty much doesn't have any oil anymore um, because of the years of, of war there. But, you know, it also looks like, you know, I'm also looking at Libya. I think uh, there are problems starting up in Libya again. You see uh, Wagner group back in there. Um, we're seeing weapons are being shipped back into Libya. So I do think we'll probably get involved there again. Um, obviously, they just restarted their uh, oil production back up at full, well, to at least 2019 levels at 1.2 million barrels a day. Um, I think we're going to see problems there. And then I also am looking over to the Horn of Africa right now, um, seeing problems in Ethiopia. Um, I definitely think that we're going to have to, we'll probably, given this administration, um, has a lot of the same people that Obama had in, in his administration, in his his cabinet. Um, so likely we will get involved there again. We've kind of been that uh, kind of Obama 2.0, right? <laughs> um, just because a lot of the same people are there. So those are kind of the hot spots that I'm looking at sort of in Africa and the Middle East. Um, and then if we go over to the China, South China Sea, obviously um, you know, there's a lot of tension between Taiwan and China. The U.S. is there. Germany actually just sent a ship over there. The French just sent a ship over there. So that's definitely an area that you kind of want to be watching um, as far as things that could be happening. Now, I do not think that China would actually invade Taiwan, not with so many eyes on them right now, right? But, it, you know, there, there is a lot of friction in I want to come back to China and and, uh, and that region a little bit more, but maybe stay in the, the Middle East for just a minute, because I, I think a couple of things are are interesting in just what you brought up. Um, it's funny, actually, when you were talking about the, like, this is what any kind of foreign or power would do. I, I just, I don't know if you were a, a West Wing person, but it's like one of the first episodes in the first season is called Proportional Response. And it's all about like Jed Bartlett, like losing his mind about the fact that you're like, you have this constant stupid cat and mouse game of like they bomb you and then you bomb them a little and it's just what you're supposed to do and it never goes anywhere. Um, and it felt it felt like watching that play out. But I, I guess, you know, so I want to actually like almost ask like kind of a really like super 101 question just for people that are listening who, you know, haven't spent a lot of time thinking about like energy politics, um, you know, and have a perception like we kind of, you know, had a perception of uh, oil-based uh, foreign policy, right? That was kind of like the the 2000s. That was the the, the dominant narrative. How have how has kind of the energy situation over the last you know five to ten years changed the way that Middle Eastern oil, for example, fits into our foreign policy calculus? And I know this, like I said, it's a super one-on-one type of question. I just want to make sure to be inclusive of a lot of different types of people who might be listening. You know, obviously, a lot of things have changed since um, 
you know, since the Iraq war, since we went into Afghanistan, um, and, you know, as far as oil is concerned, uh, the United States, since then, we had shale boom, right? Um, then we started exporting, right? So um, we're not as dependent on the Middle East for oil, per se, um, even though it is, you know, it's a global commodity, it's shipped globally, we can't actually subsist on just what the U.S. produces because WTI only produces gasoline, basically, and we still need heavier things like diesel, jet fuel, fuel oil, um, and we need heavier grades to mix uh, to make those products. So um, the oil flows are, are constant around the world, um, but we aren't as dependent on them. That said, right, um, our foreign policy is now ingrained um, after being there for, for so long, right? That's what comes with having, you know, a reserve currency and also having the most powerful military. Um, so that's, you know, we're still over there. And, you, you know, you have to think a lot of these alliances, especially with Saudi Arabia, um, you know, that we've had a relationship since the 1930s um, when we discovered oil in, you know, Aramco is American oil company, right? We've had that relationship for over, you know, hundred years, basically. So we're still uh, involved in that part of the world. Less so for oil, but more so just because of alliances that have built, been built up you know, over decades. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's super helpful just to kind of like be able to uh, dissect things in terms of their real context versus kind of uh, trot out like kind of the same old narratives. But I guess, you know, so you were kind of mentioning start of a new administration. Part of what you get is these foreign policy tests where people are kind of like testing the water, seeing what they can push, that they pull, what's going to be the response. And obviously kind of from the flip side, we're also watching how an, any given administration is trying to differentiate itself from the past one. And so speaking of Saudi Arabia, we had another piece of news um, recently that it looks like the Biden administration is going to declassify documents that kind of confirm the widely held uh, belief of Mohammed bin Salman's uh, involvement with the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. What, what do you make of that? Is it, was that just inevitable? Is it just like kind of like putting the rubber stamp on a, on a secret that everyone knew already? Or does it actually have implications for this bilateral relationship? I think that, that this is kind of going through the motions, right? Three years later, uh, kind of everything's been taken care of. And, you know, Biden just had a phone call with um, King Solomon. And literally, I read this script, and they didn't even talk about it. So I think it's more of kind of going through the motions that we kind of have to do it. You know, I mean, a lot of other countries have already acknowledged that, right? We're kind of you know, late to the table. But at this point, I think it's more of a gesture than anything else. Yeah. So I guess I want to take that same, that same kind of line or, or question around uh, how is the Biden administration potentially trying to position itself as different uh, than the previous administration? But I want to take it over to China, because I feel like one of the things that was notable during the campaign is there was a lot of kind of tit for tat back and forth on like who was going to be tougher on China or who's going to be tough on China in the right way, right? It wasn't really a question of like, 
being chuff on China or not. It was like, are we going to do it kind of unilaterally, which was kind of the Trumpian version, or are we going to do it like reassemble the alliance of nations to put pressure on China? Um, what have you seen so far or any, are there any early kind of indicators of how you think the Biden administration is or isn't going to be different as it relates to uh, China related issues? Well, I think that, I mean, we, we haven't seen much until this incident in Syria. We haven't really seen much foreign policy action out of this administration, right? So far, we've seen a bunch of executive orders that have to do with things domestically, um, but not really anything foreign policy-wise. So, you know, we're going to have to kind of wait to see um, what direction they're going to take. But I think it is notable that you know, they decided to keep the tariffs on um, that the Trump administration had, had initiated. So it doesn't look like everybody kind of thought as soon as the Biden administration came in, they would be soft on China. But so far, there aren't any real indications um, that they're going to you know, be softer or not. And the indications are right now they're keeping things as status quo. No, I think that's a good point is that we're still really early in, in seeing this. I mean, have you noticed anything maybe from the from kind of the flip side of China starting to try to test the waters differently? Or is it the same thing, kind of this like early detente holding pattern? I think it's still early detente. I mean, they've kind of, uh, you know, leaked stuff to the media, basically saying we want to be friends. But so far, it's just like your typical China. Like if they're serious about it, they would be calling the administration. They wouldn't be leaking the stuff to the media. So, you know, I think they're trying to uh, just drop, you know, hints, hi, we're here, just being friendly, right? Hi, we're here, we're open, we want to talk. But again, still early, um, nothing material has changed as far as policy is concerned between both nations. How much are you or have you been paying attention to China's CBDC uh, experiments and developments for them is it's all about control because it'll be linked to your social credit system, right? Um, so if you do something bad, you get money deducted. Uh, they're just rolling this out now, but you know, knowing the construct of, of China um, and kind of reading about how they want to use this, um, they kind of want to enter the market as you know being or you know challenge to AliPay and we pay, but the goal is eventually to uh, edge those systems out of the market and um, you know, have it all government run. It has felt to me kind of like that's been the stage, like China's kind of been like, consolidating financial power at home right now. Like, I mean, right. obviously like the, the, you know, putting putting Jack Ma on uh, on bed rest for three months and canceling right. the Ant Financial IPO and then totally restructuring Ant Financial and now absorbing like I think a couple of these kind of neo bank type services are now incorporated into the latest uh, digital yuan trials, but in the same exact way that the six you know kind of state owned banks are. Like it feels right. to me like part of the like part like is like step one is like break the power of private fintech money before right. trying to take this system system kind of international via Belt and Road and whatever other tools they have. Right, exactly. I mean, that's exactly what I kind of see. And, you know, there are some conflicts within the party right now. And so I think she is trying to um, push this, you know, along as fast as, as, as possible to sort of gain control again, because, again, there's some conflicts in the different factions in the party right now. 
Uh, you know, and there's a good chance that the next financial crisis that comes along with China, he will be gone. Keep that in mind when you think about how they're approaching the financial system right now. But he cannot have, afford to have anything fail uh, in China right now, or could um, definitely lose power. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting context. I mean, this is one of the things that people started talking about right after uh, COVID-19 is would this be an existential threat for that particular regime, you know? Right. So definitely, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on there and, uh, you know, uh, we'll see, but grabbing more power, right, essentially, right? Consolidating everything under the government. So here's a here's a random question, like kind of in a totally different direction, just for people who have been like listening for the last 15 minutes and are like, oh, this is super fascinating. But like, how does it connect to investing? I mean, for, for you, like, how does paying attention to these set of issues, like inform the way that you're thinking about markets, right? Is it is it more kind of just broad context? Are these themes that you're actually kind of like basing investment decisions on? I mean, uh, you know, a lot of this is, you know, broad concepts. You know, I look at things in a macro view, right? And then I kind of drill, drill it down. So what China is doing with their CBDC, right? Is, you know, is it going to be a model for our, you know, central bank digital currency? Um, you know, how will that affect companies that I want to invest in, right? Or areas of the world that I want to invest in? And by the way, I don't, I think the Fed will be the very, very last to join that. CBDC train. I think they're going to see how it works out for everybody else first. Um, even though that they stressed that they were interested in that, but um, yeah. So I look at things in macro view. Obviously, the Middle East is very important because um, I trade energy for a living. Um, but you know, again, it's just I take everything. And I kind of drill it down into what I'm looking at. And still all these areas, especially, you know, I have to look at China a lot because uh, they're, they're a very large consumer. India, same thing, right? So I'm looking at all these different areas and how it all comes together into a theme for within the energy and materials world that ultimately is what I trade. Yeah, I think it makes sense. I think it's just super interesting, too, because, you know, think about it from kind of like a Bitcoin perspective. Obviously, like this show, I spent a lot of time on macro because for me, it's it's way less about investing, you know, specifically and more about um, kind of understanding the world and understanding how these different assets and flows fit into that and shape things. But I feel like there's a temptation, even if you are kind of a, an investor in a specific asset or asset class, to when you start thinking macro, you try to draw these really close lines between like this thing happened in a macro context. So there's going to be a correlated kind of short term price move. Whereas like it sounds like a lot of what you're saying is much more like it's less about that and more about understanding like the broad patterns in which all of these different uh, short-term kind of actions are, are, are contextualized. Right. Because I'm looking at more of, you know, when I, you know, drill down to an investment theme, theme I'm more long-term. So, you know, I'm looking you know, two, three, five, several years out, you know. So um, I'm not looking at what, you know, short-term price fluctuations um, are not really something that I'm focusing on because I'm not, Obviously, I watch it every day, but I'm not looking for that. That kind of I'm looking for more of an investment. So, yep, approaching from the macro makes sense. I think it makes tons of sense. Looking for the best way to unlock your crypto's liquidity. 
Nexo.io is exactly what you need. Borrow against your digital assets at just 5.9% APR, earn passive income with yields of up to 12%, and swap between more than 75 market pairs with the instant Nexo exchange. Try the Nexo wallet app to get the whole 360 degrees of crypto banking. Get started at Nexo.io. Until now, blockchain technology has been a series of compromises. No layer one protocol exists in the market that supports everything enterprises, developers, and consumers need from decentralized applications. Meet Casper. Casper provides the blockchain ecosystem with a solution that makes no compromises around decentralization, security, or performance. Learn more at casper.network. So I want to come back actually to... Uh, to Powell and and the Fed and the digital dollar. I mean, were you at all? Um, did did kind of like you know he made a point of talking about that this was the year that they were going to actually engage on digital currency. Was that kind of expected for you, or did it seem like he was being intentional about making that a point? Yeah, I mean, they have been talking about it. I think he was almost forced to because Yellen has been talking about it, right? She's. Um, She's been talking about she's been talking about digital currency and Bitcoin like a lot for yeah a lot like, just a getting lot. into the job yeah right so I kind of feel like Powell kind of had to address the situation right mm-hmm. even though we know that you know um, we know that they've been looking into it right they just haven't been talking about it yeah um, so I think because you know because Yellen is now in the Treasury and she's been talking about it a lot you know the Fed's going to have to has, has to acknowledge that so. Um, I think that's kind of where they're coming from. And you have the ECB talking about it now too, right? I know. Christine Lagarde also will not shut up about this. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, the Fed, I think, you know, they had to start saying something because everybody else. Yeah. it's. I mean, it's an interesting scenario. You like, just to kind of watch, like, obviously the the thing that makes it so different is that they have the current world reserve currency, right? So it's right. it's kind of obvious on the one hand why you would be the last mover there because to the extent that you see, especially in the case of China, you know, a, a, a CBDC being a a wedge to try to kind of like create an alternative sidelong system, you know, that can get around SWIFT and things like that. Like you kind of like want to watch and wait and see how it plays out and see how much you have to care. The flip side is obviously there's policy? kind of, you yeah, know, you've got people policy? like Giancarlo. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, yeah, you kind of have to watch and see how, how these things play out because you're not really going to know how, you know, I mean, this whole uh, digital yuan could be, could not work, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, I think they're going to give it some time to kind of see how it pans out. Do people use it outside of China, right? They'll be forced to be, to have to use it in China, but, you know, are these other people going to trade with them in the PRI? Obviously, you know, countries that um, are currently sanctioned by the United States, such as Iran, um, you know, that might be something that they would look into, which, which is also going to be very interesting to see because they're kind of getting a little irritated with China right now. Yeah, there was a there was that piece that came out that was like they used Bitcoin as the headline, but it was really about like the the, the emerging Iran-China tensions. Yeah, so that's going to be very interesting because, you know, um, China is, you know, kind of ruthless when they go into your country and they, you know, give you money and um, then they sort of take power, right? Yeah. They prey on weak, weak countries. 
Yeah. Um, and you see, you know, you see this a lot in Africa and things like that. And you're starting to see some countries in Africa kind of, you know, standing up to China now, um, uh, which is kind of given Russia an open door to move into Africa a little bit more. Um, but that will be very interesting because, you know, as you know, because Iran has been sanctioned, right? They sell a lot of oil to China because China doesn't recognize unilateral sanctions and define them and they don't really care. Um, so that's been one of their biggest uh, trading partners, right? Um, so that's going to be very interesting to see um, if they try to force them to use, you know, the digital yuan, if, you know, Iran, because really Iran wants dollars, right? So whatever they're paid in, they go to the black market for, for dollars. Um, so that is going to be, you know, something interesting to see because the United States will look at that and say, okay, can, you know, if we have sanctioned countries or if people want to work the way around the dollar, are people going to adopt this currency as a method of exchange um, versus dollars, right? So it's definitely something that, that the government and the Fed are going to keep their eye on. Another question, I guess, kind of around... That, that combines these two strands that we've been talking about is I'm interested in your take on what we've seen so far from the Biden administration uh, in terms of Yellen in the Treasury, but also kind of like the continuation of policy from the Fed. I mean, I you know, so we're recording this um, the the on the 25th, I guess, or 26th it is, and there people are talking about like a, a they're, they're using the term tamp, uh, taperless tantrum, right? So the past week you've seen um, effectively like markets say to the Fed, like we don't believe you when you say that you're going to keep the pedal to the metal on this aggressive policy, even though you keep saying that you you're going to because we've you know we've 10 million less people employed, uh, we think that you're going to be forced to you know kind of let rates rise again. And I guess I'm interested in your take on like you know people people had a lot of ideas of what the scenario is going to be with Biden coming into power. Like what how do you see things playing out right now? You know, again, you know, what's very strange about we don't really see a lot of him, right? Um, we've had a bunch, again, a bunch of executive orders. We don't really see him out. We don't really, really see what this administration is doing. That they're uh, not very transparent. Um, and they haven't really, you know, really done a lot, <laughs> except for kind of reverse things that they didn't like from the Trump administration. You know, a few things like cancel Keystone XL. Um, you know, a couple big things like that, but. Um, Really, this administration's been very quiet. Um, and, you know, it seems like, um, we've seen more of the Fed, you know, we've seen more of Powell and more of Yellen than anything else so far. And so, you know, as far as, uh, I mean, it, you know, Yellen, right, was all about, uh, QE. Powell's about QE. I mean, you couldn't have more, you know, Two people uh, in control of some money that are uh, more QE oriented, if you, if you try, right? <laughs> so I don't really see that going to change, you know, even though people are saying, you know, because people are watching the rates and they're saying, rate curve says we're going to have five grade hikes in the next three years, something like that. But, um, you know, honestly, I think back in March, right, then. Every central bank went full bore. I 
think they broke something. <laughs> yeah. Right? And I think we're just we're just finding out exactly what. Like, we don't know what's broken, but we're now seeing the effects of that. Right? Now that we're in a year into this. So I think a lot of correlations might be different. Now, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a bond person. I'm just not my area of expertise um, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but it seems like, you know, a lot of things are happening in the markets that are, are kind of inexplainable, right, at, at this point. Not not just in the bond market. I mean, the entire market. Yeah. I mean, is there anything else that you find particularly head-scratching? Gold. I mean, I understand that it's a function of rates, and I understand, but, you know, it's it's definitely not acting like it should, right? Yeah, because generally you want to have some sort of head, right? And bonds obviously aren't it right now, right? Nobody's buying bonds. Um, gold's not it. Um, you do see oil up um, as an inflation hedge, uh, but that's not a traditional sort of safe haven asset, right? Bitcoin's up, obviously. But metals, I think, are precious metals, I should say. Um, lately, I... Uh, I get yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's super interesting. I mean, this is like a lot of... I don't know. It's really funny. Like, I, I mean, you live on Twitter too, but like just seeing like... <laughs> this is like a, no one no one knows what the hell's going on and so everyone has like their theory and accuses everyone else of like their theory being wrong you know like right. and it, it tends to <laughs> it tends to fall around like sectarian lines of like which asset you want to be right you know right. but it's like every i guess it's the funny thing is that it feels like every everyone agrees that like something is strange it's really just a question of like how it plays out like that's where the bets are you know Right. I mean, exactly. I mean, every day, I mean, you know, I mean, energy is doing extremely well. I can't really explain, but every day I look at this market and say, this market is so weird. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, just as, as a whole. Yeah. It's interesting that, that assessment that, uh, something broke and we don't really know what it is, I think is a, is a pretty good one. I mean, I think the thing for me that like, you know, it, it's interesting watching, this particular response that we've seen this week, where again, it's basically the market it seems to be being like, again, we don't believe you that you'll be able to like, just keep, you know, this sort of focus. And on the one hand, I will say that, like, I think that like once, you know, once the Georgia runoffs happened and uh, it was clear that the Democrats were going to have the Senate too, like the kind of the blue wave narrative came back around like, oh, it's just going to be UBI. And it's very clear that like Republicans are going to fight tooth and nail against a lot of that, just like right. as we've seen with how far they're fighting against kind of the most recent stimulus stuff. Um, but the flip side is like, you know, again, Yellen and Powell are like the the very clear signal is that they are insanely focused on the full employment part of their mandate. And, and and like, and if it, it seems to me, no one has said it this bluntly, but it feels to me like if the cost is, you know, like a million Teslas, you know, in terms of like crazy price ratios and valuations to get full employment, that they're willing to do that. It feels like that's why they're continuing to deny that asset prices have any, that they have any impact on, on asset price inflation, you know? Right. And, you know, I mean, you kind of see we've had, like, um, you know, I've had other, uh, you know, Federal Reserve heads, you know, speak throughout the week this week. And, you know, they're all kind of basically saying the same thing. We're not worried about the yield curve right now. We're worried about, you know, employment. 
You know, I think like yesterday we had like two of them, wham, bam. We don't care. We're hurt, you know. So, you know, they're focused, or so they say, on employment right now. So I don't really see them cutting easy street, even though the market is reacting like it stays right. I agree. Um, so, uh, I want to actually shift gears now into kind of more of the energy side and some of these under-discussed topics. Like when you and I were brainstorming the show, there were a few different areas that you um, that you thought were like things that just were really not paying attention to that we should. And, and I'd love to get into them. You, you you had a phrase, you said, natural gas is going to be the gateway energy drug. And so maybe like talk yeah. to me about what, what that means, and then we can get into some of these specific uh, areas that you are, you are paying attention to. I'm not really thrilled about uh, U.S. natural gas, so I'm looking at different parts of the world when I talk about uh, natural gas. Right? Even though it doesn't include the United States, that's not really where my focus is. But as far as energy transition, right? Um, natural gas is abundant. It's much cleaner than oil, um, and it's cheap, right? So when you're looking at emerging markets and things like that, moving making these energy transitions, you know, solar and wind and even um, green and blue hydrogen are still very expensive. You know what's not? Natural gas. Um, so I think that this is going to be the gateway for a lot of countries, a lot of emerging markets. Um, you're going to see it huge in Africa. You're going to see it huge in Asia. Um, so that's really, you know, my focus really is on natural gas. And I'm looking, again, at markets outside of the United States. Um, you also have Qatar. Qatar just made the like, world's largest gas project ever. Um, so they're obviously thinking that this is important. You have the uh, Ismed uh, gas corridor, right? Where you have um, Egypt, Israel, um, Greece, Italy. Um, that corridor is building up uh, very strong. There's pipelines being built. That area is growing abundantly. There's so many opportunities in um, so all of these countries really that, um, you know, and I think you'll see that it, to some extent in uh, South America as well, but really um, the big demand right now that's growing is in Africa and Asia. Um, and where we're going to see demand growth double or triple over, you know, the next 20 years. And so uh, when we look at these areas, right, you have, um, you know, in Asia, Natural gas is supposed to usage uh, over 127 percent. You have Asia, uh, Africa, 119 percent. Um, you have India at over 100 percent. So I think that that's why I'm very excited about natural gas right now. And if we look at um, Africa, even you know we've got some very large projects going on in Africa that nobody's really talking about right now. Um, there's uh, Tanzania. Um, a $30 billion project in Mozambique. We've got a $22 billion project. Um, and actually, they have two projects, 122, 115. Um, you have Nigeria that has a $20 billion project and another $10 billion project. Um, so these are areas where um, you know, we're going to see a lot of growth. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was reading about uh, some of these places where there's been this big shift, even like Egypt stopped working on a huge coal plant uh, and started really emphasizing natural gas over the last few years. And Mozambique seems to be a, like a huge area of focus as well. 
Absolutely. And then, you know, there's a lot of companies um, in that area that are um, very interesting that are not um, you know, U.S. companies. Um, but, so, I mean, that's, you know, I think that's, that's very exciting. Um, and then, believe it or not, um, nuclear, which the West is mostly shunned, right? Um, especially after the Fukushima, um, Germany decided to get rid of all of, all of their nuclear um, after that happened, and you know, kind of shunned in the United States a little bit. But if you look out um, into the world, um, you know, we have about 440 nuclear uh, power reactors right now operating in 32 countries, uh, plus Taiwan. Um, um, and there's about 50 reactors under proposal right now, right? And most of these are in Asia, which is notable in China, India, Russia, UAE, Bangladesh. Um, and then there's about another 50 in the pipeline, and most of those are all in Africa, you know, Uganda, Nigeria, Ghana, Ethiopia, Sudan, Zambia. Um, so, you know, natural gas and nuclear are going to be very big in these areas. What are the larger uh, implications of that, right? Are these things interested just because kind of from a, a, a an overall point of view? Uh, are they, how? I guess, how do they play into, uh, you know, issues back home too? Is it just kind of like the general balance of how we think about energy the world over or, or is it more specific as well? Yeah, no, I mean, again, I'm looking for, when I, you know, I'm looking for areas that I want to invest in or companies that I want to invest in. So, you know, um, you know, I, I know a lot of people, you know, I'm on a lot of energy, right? And I yeah. see a lot of people are like, you know, everybody loves uranium stocks. <laughs> um, um, and everybody's like, well, you know, where, when's nuclear coming back? We could have, you know, Texas just happened, right? So everybody's like, why don't we have more nuclear? Why don't, you know? But again, the West is kind of showing nuclear. Um, so I'm just here to say there are opportunities in that in that space elsewhere in the world. A lot of opportunities. Um, it's just kind of where it kind of blocks into this mindset. Yeah, it is interesting how much the the like we the hangover from nuclear is, especially because you have like you have Bill Gates out like every day in like some other press outlet talking about like fourth generation nuclear reactors and things like that. Yeah, he's, they just gave, you know, I think he and, uh, who was it, Bezos, just gave a bunch of money to um, that kid, well, that guy, I don't know, he's very young, uh, for a nuclear fusion project. Um, so, uh, you know, whether or not that can be done, I know the friends are working on that as well, but, um, but yeah, there's a lot of money going into that space. Super, super interesting. Um, what else are you watching outside of kind of this? I mean, you said that kind of the North American natural gas stuff isn't as interesting to you, but I know you've been looking into some of the like Great American Mining Co. and these companies that are uh, thinking about these kind of different approaches, you know, uh, connecting it back to Bitcoin. Um, is there anything interesting in that space that you've been that you've been watching? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm Marty Bent. Um, project, right? I think it's super, super, super interesting. Um, you know, I, I don't really come across those types of projects often. Um, but, you know, I kind of look at, you know, um, where I think there could be a, uh, an advantage for, you know, 
there could be an opportunity for Bitcoin is, you know, car, I think carbon capture is going to be a huge, huge, going to become a huge deal, right, for um, for natural gas and for, for the oil companies, right? And usually they take that and they just stick it back into the ground. Um, I think there's an opportunity there um, where you could uh, use that energy sort of to mine Bitcoin, right? Why not? Instead of just sticking it back into the ground. I don't know how to do it, guys, but there's my idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, how much... So uh, I was going to ask you kind of a different question. So we are obviously kind of a lot of the things we've talked about today have come down to um, it's too early. Like we're in this like weird period where we're in between one administration or another. So a lot of the geopolitics, a lot of the kind of foreign policy stuff isn't yet determined. Right. Call it over the next like three to six months. What are the things that you're paying the most attention to? What type of signals are you looking for just to understand like kind of what we're in for? Right. So I'm really looking to see where, you know, if we get involved in Libya again, that means we're going to the Horn of Africa again. That means we're going to be a bit more militarily engaged once again, right? Yep. So uh, defense talks should do extremely well. So I'm kind of looking at that for foreign policy. Obviously, I'm looking to, you know, uh, to see uh, internally, like, you know, are, are we going to have an infrastructure plan? You know, I know that. Any plan that uh, Democrats put, you know, through initially is going to get shut down. But, um, you know, it's going to be a lot of money. But kind of looking at, are we going to have any sort of infrastructure plan um, as laid out by uh, the Biden administration, you know, before coming into office? Um, so kind of I'm looking uh, for those kind of things. Also, mining is kind of, you know, are we going to move supply chains? are going to try to move supply chains back to the United States, right? Biden kind of talked about that. Um, we have this chip shortage, right? Um, well, first we had corona, right? Coronavirus, all the supply chains went down. Now we're having a chip shortage. So, you know, countries have been talking about bringing back their supply chains, right? So I think that it will be interesting to see if this administration, um, you know, how this administration handles that. You know, are we going to see more mines here? Um, are we going to try to bring other production lines back, like pharmaceuticals, uh, automobiles, etc.? Um, so, kind of looking at looking at that, um, see kind of what direction they're going to take. And that's kind of what I'm looking at: There's foreign policy and domestic policy. Yeah. And I mean, that the supply chains are kind of where those things overlap, right? To the extent right. that they can build momentum for that. I, you know, it's probably unrealistic, like, given just the stratification of politics in the US, but it's it's hard to see from where we are that, like, everything doesn't, again, just fall into these super party lines, you know, right. even if you kind of had a, a Biden administration propose something that I don't know. It's just it, it, like that's that's one thing that I've definitely seen is that we are we, we didn't get a lot less divided <laughs> after this, this right. election. I mean, you know, I mean, of the the you know, there there's two halves in government. Right? Two parties in government. Well, we have some independence. Change is slow. They're dealing with the government. So you may come in with all these great ideas, but generally we kind of end up with some sort of watered down uh, compromise version. That's just the way that it works. Um, before I let you go, just a, a couple of random ones. Uh, have you been watching the uh, the GameStop saga at all? 
Yes. Who has it? It's all yeah, over I, <laughs> Diamond hands. Oh, my God. I, I currently have diamond hands on my Twitter profile in solidarity. Nice. Um, yeah. What do you think of all this? I mean, it's like, do you do you buy the idea that it's uh, that there's kind of this protest element to it? Or do you think it's just like, that's a convenient kind of like post hoc narrative? Yeah, I think that's just kind of convenient. I mean, I think it's really, I mean, I think it's really interesting. I think uh, kind of, you know, I mean, if you looked at the Wall Street bets before, too, you know, a lot of times they would try to push around these little stocks after hours, right, because they could. Um, and I just think that, you know, it became so huge because suddenly everybody was watching it. And, you know, GameStop was one where big guys were betting against, right? So, yep. <laughs> um, so, you know, that, that became, you know, kind of like the retail trader against big hedge funds. And, you know, I don't really necessarily think it was really that. But it's really, really interesting to watch, um, like, everybody kind of get involved, right? Um, at least it was like something to talk about other than, you know, COVID for a few weeks. <laughs> Seriously. Also, uh, I have to say that Roaring Kitty's t- like testimony before Congress is probably the best testimony I've ever seen in my life. Really? I didn't see that. I need to look Oh at my it. God. You have to, I did. I, one of my podcasts from last week or whenever it was, uh, it literally has like the, the, uh, an, uh, excerpted part of his whole opening statement. Oh my God. Um, that's, that's, I yeah, have the, to read. yeah. The, uh, he, he opened with, <laughs> here are some things I am not, I am not a cat. Um, <laughs> <just> <laughs> totally hilarious. deadpan. Yeah. Is, uh, is pretty amazing. Um, anything else before I let you go that that's on your brain that, that we should chat about? Um, no, I mean, uh, next week is OPEC. So I don't know anybody trades energy that's listening. Next week is OPEC, uh, meeting, right? Um, and, uh, if you remember that Saudi Arabia had uh, kindly taken a million barrels off the market for, uh, February and March, that I expect will probably not continue being that the market's tight. You know, I think they'll at least increase by 500, uh, 500,000 barrels. Um, also, as a group, as the whole, right, they decided to um, not go ahead with 500K increase in February. So just be prepared. I think there's oil coming onto the market. However, um, I do think the market can handle it right now because we're getting pretty tight. All right. Something to watch for. Right. Cool. Well, Tracy, thank you so much. I, I always love getting to chat about uh, the world and, and energy and all these things. So thanks for hanging out and uh, can't wait till the next time. Yeah, thanks so much. One really brief reflection on that show. On The Breakdown, we discuss central bank digital currencies a lot, but it's mostly in terms of how they'll work, how they compare to Bitcoin, and what little tea leaves we're getting from central banks about them. In 2021, I'm fairly convinced that CBDCs will enter the broader conversation, but they'll do so from a geopolitical, geostrategic perspective. In other words, we'll be talking about what the implications are, not just domestically within a country, but in terms of that country's role in the world and the global economy. To me, that's the right context, so I'm excited for that shift. But for now, I appreciate you listening. Until tomorrow, guys, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.